Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. So let's get started. Uh, This time we're going to start off with uh, talking about lots of stuff having to do with the brain, and uh, also some good news, or maybe it's bad news, about daily aspirin. Let's start, however, with your very last moments. Uh, And this was just, this is what we call a natural experiment. It's a bit of news of the weird, so we'll start off with this. Your life may really flash before your eyes before you die. Many people who've had near-death experiences say that they had flashbacks back to significant milestones. And now this accident or a scientific experiment lends weight to those claims. Doctors in Vancouver were giving a 87-year-old patient a brain scan when he suffered a fatal heart attack. The scan showed that in the 30 seconds before and after the man's heart stopped beating, his brain waves followed the same pattern seen during either dreaming or recalling memories. These are apparently identical on uh, MRI. And so this suggests that maybe people really do experience one final recall of life moment right at death. Now, this is just one possible interpretation And the patient did have a brain bleed, so that could have been a very unusual type of seizure, but it didn't look like a seizure. It looked more like REM sleep. So this is remarkably similar, according to the co-author of the study, Ajmal Zemar, who said that there was a 2013 study on healthy rats uh, that apparently showed that when a rat is dying, it goes through something similar in terms of accessing memories. Well, scientific proof at last, at last that maybe there is something to the stereotypical near-death experience. Pretty cool. Now, let's take a little journey down memory lane. I was just getting ready to graduate residency when the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, which was then kind of uh, very new, and it issued its first guide to clinical preventative services in 1989. And among the other recommendations, annual mammograms and every 10-year colonoscopies, I believe, were on that list as well, uh, was a recommendation to consider aspirin prophylaxis for primary cardiovascular prevention in men 40 years or older with coronary risk factors and low bleeding risk. So let me tell you what primary prevention is. Primary prevention is where you're attempting to prevent a disease from happening. Secondary prevention is where you already have the disease and we're trying to prevent another occurrence. So In the case of heart attacks, primary prevention would mean preventing that first heart attack. Secondary prevention means once you've had a heart attack, preventing a second one. And obviously, there's a a good deal of selection bias about who might get which preventative services and how much money and resources you can really afford to uh, 
invest in primary prevention since almost by definition, the yield on that per life saved is going to be lower. Now, the sole basis for that recommendation in 1989 was two randomized cr- clinical trials in which which were studies that were performed exclusively on male doctors. In 1989, it would have been largely white male doctors. And of course, back then, uh, white men were the default human, and so it makes complete sense that they did that. But uh, yeah, in 1996, after further deliberation, they reconsidered the evidence and they concluded that the balance of harms and benefits was too close to justify a general recommendation. Well, what were the harms? Primarily GI bleeding or and also bleeding into a, a stroke area. So post-infarction uh, bleeding is a real problem because the blood is much more damaging than the ischemia. The lack of oxygen kills tissue, but the spillage of blood into it causes much more damage. But then, again, in 2002, after three more trials with a more representative study population, they recommended strongly that clinicians discuss chemo prevention with people at increased risk for coronary disease and suggested that decisions be performed by risk calculators. And then by then we had the internet and all of these cardiac risk calculators popped up on the internet and You'll notice that strongly recommended was for having the discussion. It wasn't for routine aspirin use. However, routine aspirin use made a strong comeback, and everybody started taking aspirin again when they were over 40. And in 2009, they went further, and it specifically recommended aspirin prophylaxis be encouraged uh, in uh, individual patients. But now... We have new recommendations. Three clinical trials from 2018 uh, provided support for stopping aspirin in patients 60 years or older because of higher risk of GI bleeding and a failure to successfully prevent events. And then for if you're between 40 and 59 years old, uh, we should be selectively offering based on professional judgment and patient preferences. This is just crazy, okay? If you, the, the variability here is, is great, and it's clear that the evidence of benefit and the evidence of harm are kind of being done ex post facto, after the fact. So my recommendation is really think twice about aspirin prophylaxis and we, and look at the data for your demographic. That that there are lots of studies out there now, and if and if the doctor makes a blanket recommendation, honestly, I'm going to say something rather subversive, and I would figure that they're still following one of these older task force recommendations because you know what? It's really hard to keep track of it when the People who are supposed to be giving us science-based recommendations are doing an excellent imitation of being a weather bane. So our next story is a bit longer. One of our big problems now that we've got legalization of uh, marijuana, 
And that's that we don't actually, well, let's just call this segment Pot Justice and the Field Sobriety Test. The story starts, I'm going to start off with a, a personal story. This uh, art came actually from an article that I pulled from uh, Wired. And of course, because it's Wired, it's hard to find what month uh, it was because they're very minimalist. But I think we're looking at the September 2022 Wired magazine. Uh, and this one is going to start off with uh, a guy named Doug Frazier. So he worked at a weed store, and so he lived in just a little bit north of Seattle, and he set it all up. He booked the food trucks, he booked the glass blowers, and more than a thousand people showed up. He worked 12 hours that day, and he did not get stoned because state regulations in in, uh, Washington don't allow uh, industry employees to partake on the premises, a good rule. But before he went to bed that night, he took a small uh, hit of uh, THC oil, and the next morning he drove back to the pot sh- shop, and he checked out at 6 p.m., so he worked all day, felt fine. He uh, kind of was hurrying home when he got pulled over for speeding. The cops saw the employee badge for the pot shop hanging around his neck, and uh, the cop said, okay, when was the last time you smoked? And he said, well, not today, which was true. And this is an important part of the story. So he was asked to complete a field sobriety test on the side of the the uh, highway. Now, for those of you who've never done one of these or seen it on TV, uh, first you count out a duration of 30 seconds in your head, uh, sort of to check your sense of time. And then you're supposed to balance on one leg. And then you're supposed to... Uh, put your arms out and touch your nose, and there's a few other things. Well, this guy kind of freaked out because he was nervous, he says, and he was arrested and taken into custody, then to the hospital first to have his blood drawn. Now, according to Washington law, it's illegal to drive with five nanograms or more of THC in your blood. But it isn't like the alcohol test, you see, because... Unlike alcohol, which is water-soluble and dissipates quickly from the bloodstream, THC is fat-soluble, meaning that there's a great deal of individual variability. It may fade within a few hours in some individuals, but it can also linger in the body for weeks after the person no longer feels high. So this guy had had marijuana and the form of oil about 20 hours earlier, and he was way above the limit, although he felt fine. nine nanograms of THC per legal limit. Now, he's fighting this in court because he claims he was fine. But let's just take a step back. There's no such thing as a weed breathalyzer. There's no biological factor that indicates whether someone is impaired. Uh, Not blood, urine, uh, spit, none of these things. Every state prohibits driving under the influence, (laughs) but no state has found a reliable way to sort out the stoned from the sober. In fact, the the pharmacokinetics of cannabis are so variable from person to person that if two people sat down and shared exactly the same amount of 
the of a joint of the same pot, one person might dip below that five nanograms two hours later, and the other one might stay above five nanograms for a week. So how do you prove stoned driving? And yeah, well, a lot of people believe that marijuana doesn't impair your ability to drive because it makes you drive slower, so you're safer. But there's plenty of data, folks. Sorry to, um, you know, sorry to be a buzzkill here, but Marijuana does interfere with skills, reaction time, processing speed, and most importantly, visuospatial perception. Data, epidemiologic data is slippery. So there was a study that was published uh, in the years after Washington. It was published in 2020, and it showed that in the years after Washington state legalized marijuana, the percentage of people involved in fatal crashes who tested positive for THC doubled. And this made headlines because... It's like, well, stone driving is a good reason to keep weed illegal. But those findings probably also reflect the fact that that now that it's legal, more people in the state of Washington are smoking cannabis. So it doesn't prove cause and effect, right? Correlation is not causality. So the people who tested positive at the five nanogram level could have been the ones who got stoned days before they put the key in the ignition. And by the way, during that same period, the total number of road fatalities actually declined. So maybe there is something to that pot makes you drive slower trope. Uh, because, hey, if you get into an accident and you're driving slower, you're much less likely to die. So more non-fatal accidents could be a side effect. But you just can't draw this conclusion. However, the authorities do. All right, well, I'm going to try... I'm going to try line one, and we'll see if anybody's there. Hello. Are you, are you there? I am here. Oh, good. Uh, please go ahead. What's your name, and who are you calling from? Uh, hi. Uh, my name is Rick. I'm calling from Monterey. I have a question about a, um, a breast cancer diagnosis uh, that uh, my daughter received, and I wondered if uh, I could just give you some details and see if you have any, any, any comments. Uh, sure. First of all, how old is your daughter? She's 50. And has she? did she have babies before the age of 30? No, no babies. And any uh, family history of breast cancer back to the aunt and grandmother level? I don't care about the um, second cousin. Right. Second cousin, yes. Aunt, no, no aunt or grandmother okay. uh, breast cancer that we know of. All right, fine. See, the reason that's important is statistically, everybody's got a second cousin with breast cancer because it's a common enough cancer. Oh, wow. Uh So so it's, you know. I have have 21 cousins on one side of the family, so. Almost almost guaranteed. (laughs) Almost a guarantee (laughs) that one of them will. Uh, So uh, let's let's continue. Go ahead with your details. Okay. um, Well, she's had a few... uh, um, um, surgeries on on her right breast in the past uh that none of them were um um uh cancer and uh, there it might have been one, something that's sort of possibly precancerous and they suggested maybe she take a pill for it she did uh possibly but she didn't anyway now it's on the other breast there were some uh calcifications and she had two um, biopsies. Uh, both showed um, uh, LCIS. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Uh, so um, uh, that I guess that means it's kind of stage zero cancer. Yeah, uh, it's, as I understand. Yeah, it's like a ba- it's on its way, but in situ means that it hasn't yet started to show evidence of invasiveness, but it's got uncontrolled growth, and it looks funky, and you don't want to leave that in there. There's right, right. Okay, and it's it's in quite a few other places besides the two biopsies, so it's kind of snaking around mm-hmm. in the in the left breast. Right. Anyway, uh, uh, that's the diagnosis, and she's with Kaiser in San Francisco. Uh, she likes her her oncologist and her surgeon. She's had meetings with everybody, and uh, um, they recommend a. Uh, either a single or double mastectomy. Mm-hmm. Um, they say that in, in, in other, you know, other cancers where it's more localized, maybe they can do radiation or other things or, or a partial uh, um, lumpectomy. But in this case, it's just, even, even though there's nothing invasive, it's like, it's everywhere. I mean, they could theoretically do, you know, a dozen more uh, biopsies, but that's that's not... No, it's, so tomorrow. basically what I'm hearing is that two out of two biopsies so, showed lobular carcinoma in uh, situ. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Two out of two, yes. Two out of as, two. Far as, I, as far as I recall, yeah. Right. And, and there may be widespread calcification in her breast, but that's kind of irrelevant here. First of all, the more common breast cancer that we find in its early stages is ductal carcinoma in <clears> situ. <throat> and the ductal tends to grow... That's the ducts, the milk ducts, basically, and they're tubes, and it'll tend to grow along the tube before it pa- it crosses the wall of the tube. So you have a little bit of time with the ductal carcinoma, and typical treatment there would be remove the actual ductal carcinoma in situ and then hit the breast with radiation because you know that there are little seeds every- elsewhere that will mm-hmm. probably turn into ductal carcinoma in situ, and you may not be lucky enough to catch it before it actually goes further. So that's kind mm-hmm. of the strategy with with ductal. This is lobular, and lobular mm-hmm. is always worse. The lobules are the milk glands, right? And so they look like, think about a, gra- a, a bunch of grapes, okay? So the ducts are the stems of the grapes, and the lobules are the grapes, so the mm. lobules, the skin of, of the grape is much thinner, and it's much easier for it to jump into the lymph nodes. It's much easier for it to jump into the bloodstream and go somewhere else. Uh, so the lobulars, you, you wouldn't feel comfortable just irradiating the breast. And, and it's also rarer. And so this really raises the possibility that there's just something gone wrong with the control of for breast cancer. Something's, the program has gone wonky, okay? So mm-hmm. the programming that would normally protect her and prevent these things from cropping up in the first place, once when, this, when it goes wonky at the level of two out of two positive biopsies, it's wonky throughout both breasts. And debatable, in my opinion, uh, you know, if, you know, and again, I don't know all the clinical details, but there's no real reason to assume that just the left breast or the right breast is involved with this bad program. It's, mm. it's a good bet that it is bilateral, that it's systemic. 
And mm-hmm. so that's why, for example, if someone has one of those DNA mutations like BRCA, BRCA1 or BRCA2, if you're going to do anything, mm-hmm. that you take both breasts if you're going to remove anything because it's, it's a flaw at the cellular level, not a mm-hmm. local flaw. Not, it's not a local leak in the roof. It's the, the whole roof is bad material. And it's, if it's not leaking now, it's going to start leaking later. Okay, that's that's something that I had not understood, and I don't think she has anyway that, that either. That's very uh, important. Uh, I have a, do have a question. This is probably could be very ridiculous, uh, but uh, she has had her thyroid removed. It was not cancerous, but she had a a, a a goiter and had it removed. So I don't know if that has anything to do with controlling the that system or if that's completely different, but uh, I thought I would add that information. Well, I don't think it's relevant to our treatment decisions. Uh, <clears throat> okay. In general, if her thyroid is being well-managed medically, I wouldn't expect it to have any re- any bearing on her developing <clears throat> the cancer. Okay. Um, uh, I was I was told that it would be a really good idea to uh, push for an MRI before uh, and to also to help her make the decision about about uh, her course of action. So right now she has uh, shortly she has a, a schedule for an MRI, and three days later she has a uh, has uh, surgeons and uh, for possible for either single or a double, and also re- a reconstructive surgeon. And they're they're all oh yeah they're it's, all scheduled. If you're, if you're going to do reconstruction, which it is not a problem. You want to know going into the surgery that you're going to do that because mm. you, you leave more skin behind, basically. Mm-hmm. And you want to leave covering, coverage. So you take, mm-hmm. and so uh, you might not, but you don't want like a droopy bag of skin after the mastectomy. So you would take, if you weren't going to to do an augmentation or a, a, a reconstruction, then you wouldn't leave that, that extra skin. You'd smooth it out. Mm-hmm. That makes sense, mm-hmm. right? Just from. Mm-hmm. They also said that they, when they go in there, they're going to do a um, uh, a lymph, like what is it, a blue dye or something? Right, that's uh, called a sentinel node biopsy. And you remember what I said about it being able from the lobules to get into the lymph nodes. This is right. This is also done for the DCIS. And here the concept is, you put the dye where you know there's a tumor or a pre-tumor. And the, or, this is a. Uh, this is a adolescent cancer it hasn't it hasn't spread its wings and flown yet but mm-hmm. uh, but which where which road is it going to take when it flies and so if you put dye in the area where the tumor is then it'll drain into one or two lymph nodes because the lymph nodes it's sort of like uh, a distribution to so the breast is fairly large and the the 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock goes to this lymph node, the 1 o'clock to 2 o'clock goes to that lymph node, and so on. Does that make sense? Drainage? Yes. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. you go after the local drainage to identify which lymph node, because they all look alike when you're in there in the underarm. You can't tell. The one that mm. the one that, sh- that lights up, so to speak, or changes color, it's like, okay, that's our, that, if there's cancer from that in a lymph node, that's the lymph node it's going to be in. And if the lymph node's positive, then you're looking at chemo. So if 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 they uh, it, once they do the they find which way which path the uh, lymph node is it's going, then they would do a biopsy at that time. They'll take out they'll take area? out that lymph node. Yeah, 
when they're while oh, they're they'll take it out. They'll take it out, slice oh. it up, and look for cancer in it. Okay. Yeah. And one lymph node doesn't cause the swelling. When you the old days we used to do these radical mastectomies, which means we take the breast and we take all of the lymph nodes on that side. And then the person oh, will be dealing with a right. big old puffy arm, kind of elephantiasis of the arm for the rest of their life. And oh. you can drive blood out of that arm. You couldn't take the blood pressure on that arm. And the arm oh. will be painful and kind of bloated and swollen. Beats dying of breast cancer, but it wasn't a pretty thing. And we figured out with these sentinel biopsies, we didn't need to be doing any of that. We just had to develop a better technique. Great. Now, uh, back uh, to the MRI for just a second. Are they going to yeah. be doing... Uh, are they just doing a breast MRI or a total body MRI? Uh, that's a very good question. Because if it's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say the breast MRI was necessary on the side that you know you're going to be removing. And right, if the decision right. is to do two, you know, both breasts, which, you know, for myself, I would favor that decision in this circumstance. Mm, but mm. that's me talking about me, and I can't yes. presume to have any other. Uh, you know, I'm not dating. I've got. I've been in a stable marriage for many years, so it's not like I expect to have my body evaluated by somebody who doesn't care about me and isn't, you know, used to the body such as it is. So it it really depends on personal circumstances. Some people are very sensitive, or they're very proud of their breasts, and it would be really hard for them. So you you've got to leverage yeah. all that individual stuff in. But a but um, as far as yeah. If the I'm lymph node's positive, if, if lymph node's positive, she's going to basically end up with a total body MRI anyway, because then you have to go looking for evidence of, or or a, what's called a PET CT scan, where you have to go looking for evidence of spread. Like, it, okay, right. horses left the barn. Where did it, which direction did it run, and where is it now? So, so, so you don't feel that it's necessary or advise advise necessarily to push. If, they're, if they weren't going to be doing a full MRI before, it's not necessarily... Ha- I a, think if a, she's... A, here's where I would do it, okay? If she's yeah. leaning on just having one-sided surgery, then I think an MRI of the side she's tend- she's planning on leaving in there is a good idea. That's Yeah, that's a definite. They, yeah. they definitely want to do that. But, I don't, what I don't know is if they're going to do more. Well, uh, why, more well if, why, why, if you're going to already take the one on the left out, what, what's the... how? You always ask yourself... Okay, how is this additional information going to change my behavior or or our clinical decision-making? Right. And if you can't come up with a good answer, don't do the procedure because you're opening Pandora's box every time you do a procedure. It's like, oh, look, there's a little thing over there. That could be something. We should check back in three months. And then you're sweating out the next three months. And, you know, this is Gotcha. This is yeah. bad enough. So it's like, don't go looking for trouble because there's all kinds of false alarms with MRIs. So, so in the in the case that that uh, that that my daughter looks at at the information as as it's been laid out, and uh, they do seem to kind of lean toward the the double the double mastectomy. If she agrees with that. Do you think perhaps it would be uh, a good idea to just not worry about the, certainly not worry about the, there'd be no reason to do a, a breast MRI, and there's no, and maybe not, not a good time to do the full MRI until they do see what happens with the lymph glands, with the, with the, with the. With the yeah, I mean, given the, li- given the information that you've 
explain to me at, at, at present, it seems like you, it would be prudent to proceed in a stepwise fashion, get that out. I mean, it's not like an emergency, but I wouldn't sit on it for three months, you know. And right. No, she, uh, she has something in, in the next uh, two weeks. Yeah, uh, yeah that, and that's, a t- that's what we would call it. You need timely fashion, which is exactly uh-huh. when, when you want this to happen. And then um, make sure, you know, as part of her recovery, she should be looking at websites. It, she's down in, um, I don't know what they've got down in, in Monterey or Carmel, but oh, she, she's in she's in San Francisco. Oh, she's in San Francisco. So there's excellent yeah. cancer resource centers affiliated with all of the hospitals up in the city. So you know she should be uh, attending those meetings. You know, in, as part of her recovery, she's getting uh, maybe the, if that isn't working for her, an online uh, support group mm-hmm. because you pick up all sorts of really good tips and tricks. Mm. It's like I have a Tesla, so. If I have a problem with the Tesla, good luck talking to Tesla. <laughs> you know, forget it. Right. Uh, but the forums. The owner. There, there's owner all kinds squad. of people with time on their hands on the forums who are hobbyists mm. who, you know, if you have a question, put it in the forum and check back in a day. And generally someone will have answered it. And, and then someone will have critiqued their answer. And then someone else will have said, no, that was the right answer. And then someone else will have weighed in. And you've got a whole debate on your question. Great. All right. Well, uh, well, I'm going to sign off now. One last qu- real quick one, if you have one, or otherwise, uh, happy new year. Uh, no, no, I just, just thank you so much for the time, and uh, it's very helpful. I was wondering whether she needed uh, that. The only other question would have been, uh, you know, kind of second opinion, go to somebody at Stanford, blah, blah, blah. But it sounds to me like I just we just got the second opinion. From a primary care doctor. Okay. From a smart primary care doctor, but not from an oncologist. I understand. But I hope I've explained the issue well, not just to you, but to the broader audience. And uh, so thank you very much for listening, and Happy New Year. I thank you so much for your service. It's great. Appreciate it. Bye for now. And now let's get back. If you remember before we had the caller, I was just getting into setting up the problem with marijuana. There's no field sobriety test that really works for marijuana. And there's, uh, it's very subjective. And we know it's subjective because this guy was telling you about Doug Fraser. Well, he was a white guy in Seattle. He ended up with a speeding ticket and three years of probation, about $4,000 in fines. Typical sentence for driving under the influence if you're white. But across the country, drivers with darker skin are disproportionately getting busted for driving around with THC in their veins at five uh, nanograms because lots of people have that weeks after they've smoked or used People of all races use pots at similar rates. Okay, that's established. But black people are four times more likely to get arrested for possession. And black people are significantly more likely to get pulled over. So therefore, they're more likely to be searched once they're on the side of the road, just like the accidents. If you're in a state where marijuana is illegal, there's probably going to be, when uh, given that the number of car accidents are uh, whatever they are in that state, There's going to be fewer people with pot in their blood at the five nanogram level uh, because there's fewer people smoking pot, period. Once it's legal, 
there's going to be more people smoking. There's going to be more people who have accidents with that five nanogram level in their blood, but you don't really know if they're impaired. So what to do? Well, about 15 years ago, a neurobiology researcher at the University of Rochester Medical Center named Charles Duffy set out to build a device that could quickly and effectively assess cognitive impairment. Now, CT scans and MRI cannot yet detect definitive markers for uh, neurodegenerative diseases. Well, they can, they can sort of detect uh, beta amyloid by MRI, and you can sort of look at the size of the hippocampus and use those as markers for uh, more advanced Alzheimer's. But cognitive evaluations, especially for like driving, are generally performed by doctors. They're subject to error and bias. And so what Duffy wanted to do was create a technology that would eliminate the element of human subjectivity, tracking the cognitive decline associated with aging, independent of the patient's language capabilities and cultural or ethnic or educational background. These are all confounds that make it more difficult to evaluate and compare people, and also socioeconomic background. The device would need to be able to evaluate memory, visual acuity, processing speed, reaction time, and higher-order reasoning and concentration skills, the so-called executive functioning. And he wanted to get it down to 10 minutes, and he wanted it to be a learning program that would shift in difficulty and speed according to the patient's abilities, like a programmed learning app. And so uh, that's called adaptive psychophysics. And so he named his proto-device Cogniview, and the first prototype weighed 145 pounds and was on a five sard it was on a a a metal box on a four foot tall rolling cart not exactly portable now the fda actually cleared cogniview for use in 2015 but because no one else had any technology that would do anything like this they had to create a new category of device called cognitive assessment aids in order to classify it But Duffy really couldn't get it off the ground. Uh, He wasn't a salesman. He was an inventor. So he sold the company to a billionaire software uh, tycoon uh, named Tom Golisano. And he put together a team to help miniaturize the device. It's now about the size of a old Apple iBook, maybe circa 2000, weighs about eight pounds, and it has uh, opens up. And instead of a keyboard, there's a little rotating knob and a wheel, uh, sort of uh, sort of like a joystick, but not quite. And it this wheel is really critical because this thing because reaction time is important. So the subject is supposed to maneuver the lo- the knob to move a green circle on the screen until it's aligned over the right answer. And the question might be, what shape is different? Or which world, which word is real? Sounds like stuff you might take on an IQ test. But as the, the assessment progresses, the sensitivity of the wheel changes. So now you have to push through it because it has a lot of inertia, like you were trying to push a chopstick through peanut butter. And now uh, the peanut butter turns into water. And it's so now you have to adjust how hard you push it because the thing's going to force you to redirect so it does uh, one thing with trippy flashing dots, 
and it says you know, stay on the bright dots with your with your blue green with your green wedge but then the dots and the contrast of the dots get lower and lower and visual contrast processing is one of those things that's been well established to be a cognitive skill so they've got you know dots bump uh, bouncing around and you have to answer which dot moves differently there's uh, memory testing of course and so they were really aiming at Alzheimer's disease. They were aiming at finding early cognitive decline. But the companies, like, well, where's our market, right? We're going to put this at the pharmacy, like the blood pressure machines. Uh, corporations going to use this. Probably couldn't use it for your job interviews. But then they realized, wait a minute. Ah, law enforcement. This had the potential to be an especially robust form of what the experts like to call an external impairment test for cannabis. And considering the racial bias we've already talked about, uh, a gold standard objective impairment test would be one that does not rely on the subjective, uh, well, the cognitive bias, the confirmation bias, and maybe even the, out, the outright racism of the police officer. So they put together a, they needed to create peer-reviewed, they needed to do a really good study. So they put together their study team and tried to design a, uh, a group so that they could look at not just how impaired people were, but also whether or not people were good judges of their impairment. Now, as you may be aware, the legitimate peer-reviewed research in the United States requires scientists to use a special kind of cannabis that is grown at the University of Mississippi. These, uh, this cannabis is notoriously weak, and it's often moldy because it's been stored so long. And so it does not, in fact, resemble the very high-potency marijuana that is a you know, how many dispensaries do we have in, uh, Santa, in Santa Cruz County or Monterey County? You know, this stuff is not hard to find at very, very high concentrations. So they put together a team, and the first thing that they wanted to look at was show that their computerized test scores demonstrated impairment better than highly trained cops because there are these experts in uh, cognitive testing. They're called... Uh, cognitive experts, and of course, they are not in the squad car that pulls you over, but they wanted to try and get the state of New York to support this, so they needed to do a study. So they got, uh, they have a New York State DRE, and that's the uh, test that's exempted, that's given by law enforcement to establish, and they, the plan was to bring people in, and they were going to use cops and stoners as the two test groups. And they were going to do a blood test to get their uh, their THC level. And then they were going to do a cognitive t- uh, cognitive test when they first came in. And they were going to do this DRE test that the law enforcement uses. And then they'd all go have lunch. <laughs> and after lunch, they'd all get stoned. And then they'd repeat the same assessments over and over again until they were back to feeling 
like, oh, well, this is where I, this is my baseline. I'm back to being able to drive. I'm back to where I was when I started. And uh, they, they had to get around that crappy weed thing because he wanted this to reflect what was actually going on in the world. So he decided that trial participants would bring their own vape cartridges. And he figured that uh, we could look at the blood levels and then that would give us our, uh, that right after they smoked, and that would give us a, a sense for the potency. And of course, because of differences in inhalation, two people might get different, uh, just different amounts. How long do you hold it in, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so they set this up and they had 10 cops uh, white men, you know, kind of, kind of buff and serious, and well, you know, the guy he's probably pulled you over for a traffic stop, and then of course they have the kind of scruffier, scrawny, more diverse, uh, and it's Denver for this study. So the um, you know white, light skinned Latino, a few blacks, and uh, Asian, East Asian, South Asian folks, uh, kind of sprinkled in for fun. By the way, they didn't find any racial uh, correlations in terms of how fast people broke down their pot, which I think is an interesting, uh, an interesting little thing. So as I said, they uh, went ahead and got their baseline testing, and then they uh, got high, and then apparently a hilar- hilarity ensued as they tried to uh, do the tests again. Remember, they would have even had the benefit of a practice effect, but the the study participants all got high enough to be very confused and score very badly on the cognitive view. And so we're talking about, just based on the the stories here, uh, people were having real trouble with this test, which is exactly what we want. Now, the National Highway traffic safety admin says that cannabis impairment peaks between 90 and 120 minutes after smoking. But actually, uh, that was not the case. And what they found was that nearly two hours of uh, two hours after people were still quite impacted, this Cognitive view test, I think, if you fail it, is our best bet rather than blood levels. So according to the blood test, 74% of the potheads walked in stoned. And of those, 47% scored at their baseline uh, as impaired. But that DRE test only 21% of them scored as impaired. And then when people felt sober again, the blood test, 84% of the people still had over five nanograms. And 68 68 of them were still impaired. The thing that was the most impaired, and this really scared me, was visual salience reaction time. So the people, when they were stoned, it slowed down their ability to understand what they were seeing. So it's the same problem, visual salience, that the people who are trying to build self-driving cars are struggling with. 
Is that a guy pushing a bicycle? Is that a guy on a bicycle? Is that just a bicycle parked on the road? The, com- the computers are having a real hard time with that. Well, you've got people driving who have put themselves into that situation, and they don't really even know it. And boy, did the differences in uh, weed really show up. One person went up to 2,091 nanograms of THC per ml of blood after uh, vaping. Okay, that was the extreme end of, wow, that person really got high levels. Another one peaked at 150 and was back down to testable zero after an hour. So the take-home here is that inconsistency is the only constant. Blood levels stink and are unjust and are just not going to be useful in this. People who smoke every day are very likely to be walking around impaired. That's the other take-home. Almost half of the potheads in the study had a delayed reaction time at baseline before they even vaped. Yet many of these people's felt totally sober, totally normal. And the question is, what about younger people? What about people who are still in school? What about people, you know, I am not a Puritan here, folks. I am not anti-marijuana. I am, however, definitely against interfering with your cognitive function and pretending that you aren't. And when it comes to the car accident thing, yes, maybe non-fatal accidents because people slow down, but I personally don't want to be, you know, in front of the guy who doesn't stop because his reaction time is slowed and it's dark. So yeah, non-fatal, great, but I, I think we all need to maybe really think twice about this and good, solid testing. If this device can be miniaturized, there's no reason that we can't come up with some sort of even online subscription thing where you could take a test that would give you an idea of whether it was safe for you to drive, these same sort of reaction tests. Maybe some of the dementia tests we should be weaponizing before we drive after we've partied the day before. Just saying. Be aware that you may feel sober and still have delayed reaction times, and that could be dangerous and lead to great tragedies. So, sorry about the wet blanket, but I'm done. It is time for another couple of short stories. You may have seen the news about a young lady with a particular form of T-cell leukemia who was recently cured using gene editing. She's actually uh, the first person whose cancer has been cured Forming uh, using this particular form of gene editing. So I thought I would tell you just a little bit about it. Uh, now, you've heard, if you're a regular listener here, about CRISPR. We started talking about that back in 2013. And it's a cut and paste for DNA. You can either, you can do one of two things. You can either fix genes by cutting out a broken piece of DNA and replacing it, uh, or you can, in fact, add traits or add, you could add a flaw if you were trying to, say, disable, make mosquitoes uh, infertile. Uh, So you can fix genes or you can disable them. But the fixing part where you don't just mess up the gene, but you actually 
repair it is much trickier because to fix genes, you have to add a bit of DNA in the correct place and then trigger a repair process that results in it being swapped for the faulty DNA on the other side of the string. And using CRISPR, this only works in about a tenth of the cells. And you can't do it in cells that aren't actively dividing. So brain cells, you know, not so much. So a guy named David Liu at Harvard University is and his team are creating tools that fix mutation by turning one DNA letter into another. See, the challenge is that there are four DNA bases, letters, A, T, G, and C. And uh, that's adenine, thymine, guanine, and cytosine. And each of these can turn into any of the other three. And this is called a point mutation. So in order to fix all the unwanted mutations, we'd need to be able to edit the bases in 12 different ways which means we an A gets turned into a G and you turn it back to an A, a T gets turned into a C or a G, and you turn that back. And they've created a new base editor, they call it BE3, and it can change a C to a T or a G to an A. It starts with the standard CRISPR protein, which is a pair of molecular scissors, and then there's a guide part, so it's it's analogous to giving the bloodhound uh, a handkerchief or a shoe to sniff, and then it goes after that particular smell. This is a 20 base pair sequence of DNA, which statistically, 20 if you've got 20 base pairs in a, in a row, that's going to be a unique location on the DNA of an organism. So you can find that particular place and then cut it after that sequence. So they add to that, uh, rather than the the cutting part, they replace the scissors with an enzyme that goes to the spot where the guide DNA or guide RNA leads it and converts converts the C's or the T's. So now they've got an, so they had already developed that one. Now they've got another one that changes an A into a G and a C into a T. So now they've got essentially four of the 12 possible single-letter mutations. And fortunately for all of us, the one, these are the more common ways that DNA goes bad, so more common in terms of point mutations. So this is safer than gene editing with CRISPR. And in the case of that young lady in England, it was used to actually fix her bone marrow and uh, get rid of her cancer, which is amazing. And between that and some of the other recently discovered uh, drugs and agents and the way we are being able to direct things so narrowly, like essentially decide what we need the protein to do, we'll soon we'll be deciding what we need and building the tool from scratch and creating DNA or that will that we can put into a yeast cell that will make that thing that we thought up and created. Now, obviously, this needs to be utilized in a very prudent fashion, but it is just miraculous that we've gotten to a place where that's even possible. And very exciting to me.
let's talk about spinal or general anesthesia for total hip arthroplasty. This is, you know, I always encourage people to get spinal anesthesia if they possibly can. And this latest study backs me up on that. Uh, It's debated a lot. This was the Mayo Clinic research. They looked retrospectively at 14,000 total hip replacements. The average age, 64. The average body mass index, for your information, 31 kilograms per meter squared. That's technically obese. And general anesthesia was administered in 58% of the cases. So those who received spinal anesthesia had lower overall scores throughout their hospitalizations. They used 26% less opiates, which I will tell you means they had a lot less constipation. They had fewer episodes of altered mental status, about a 30% reduction. Fewer blood transfusions, I find that interesting, about another 30%. Fewer intensive care admissions, again, a 30% reduction. And uh, the only increased complication was they were more likely to have post-op urinary retention, which compared to an ICU admission or a blood transfusion, yeah, leave, my, leave, the, leave, the, cat, leave the Foley in and for the first 24 hours. I'll deal with it, you know. Uh, length of stay was the same. And there were no differences in readmissions or uh, blood clots. So basically, get the spinal anesthesia if you need surgery. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans. Or follow my tweets at, at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Don saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Don is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.